I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilize the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step. And you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer. Or visit cress.com. We've made it to the end of 2022, and what a year in gardening it's been. We've fared through the unprecedented heat and droughts of summer to one of the coldest and most brutal starts to winter in years. Not to mention supply shortages, price fluctuations, and a sharpened focus on climate and sustainability. But whilst you could call it a year of unpredictability and changes, for me it's been a joyful year of surprise results problem solving and new tricks and i think my colleagues across the rhs agree i've learned that especially the herbaceous plants they really have come back they really do cope they just sort of have a shutdown mechanism and as soon as the right conditions come back they re-emerge and yeah that that was quite something to see today we'll be hearing from horticulturalists at RHS Wisley about their 2022 successes and failures. Before coming into the present with plant pathologist Jassy Draculic, she'll tell us all about the wonderful fungi we can find fruiting on logs this winter. Yeah, on this grey, drizzly day, I'd say that the fungi here are really what is grabbing at my attention. Plus, experts Louisa Peel and Ian Trout will be sharing advice on exactly how and when to cut back herbaceous perennials. These are summer-grown plants. They're plants that do their flowering and growing in the summer, but they also have interesting winter structure. You're listening to Gardening with the RHS with me, Guy Barter. For me, this summer has been drought and then more drought. Like most people in the south and east, the lack of rain and the heat has really disrupted my gardening. But all the same... When the rains finally returned in August, everything started growing and my despair at the middle of the summer gradually gave way to, well, I'm really quite pleased. I planted out all my cabbages and Brussels sprouts and leeks and they went in just before the really hot, dry weather and they looked terrible and I could hardly water them enough. And as much as I struggled, the worse they looked and I really felt I was in for another year of difficult cabbage family results. But in the end, it all came right. So it just shows you just got to persist. But enough about me. Let's head to Wisley. Hi, I'm Louisa. I work on the herbaceous borders by the Glasshouse Landscape. Hi, my name's Ian. I'm a horticulturalist at Wisley. I work on the Glasshouse borders near to the Glasshouse. So I think the thing I've learned this year is, because we've experienced some quite extreme weather with the 40-odd degree heat, and I've learned that, especially the herbaceous plants, they really have come back. There are things in the garden that I thought were dead. They effectively went back to nothing in August, just a brown patch. And then 
within a month when we'd had the rain, they were growing again. So I've learned that some of those plants don't need as much water as you think they do. And that they're established herbaceous plants that have been in the ground many years, but they can cope with more than I thought they could cope with. I thought they'd be dead, to be honest. It's worth saying that you don't have to pander to shrubs and perennial plants that have been in the ground for quite a long time. It's the new ones you have to look after. There are any new trees, new shrubs, new plantings, divisions if you've divided them, anything where the roots are not very strong to save on water, especially when we had the hosepipe ban, concentrate on those and leave the ones that are, have been established for a while because we've learned this year that, as Ian just said, they really do cope. They just sort of have a shutdown mechanism and as soon as the right conditions come back, they re-emerge and, yeah, that, that was quite something to see. They didn't necessarily look their best in the summer. A lot of them are quite stunted in their growth, but they obviously had quite good root systems that they were able to survive. So I concentrated, and I think it's best to concentrate on plants that are newly planted or newly divided. You know, in, in the instance of trees and shrubs, you know, they need a sort of couple of years in the ground to establish a good root system. Most of them were able to survive. Yeah. I've definitely learned that plants are more resilient than you think they are. And I think established plantings probably don't need as much water as we thought they did. Hi, I'm Callum. I look after the tropical glasshouse here at Wisley. And I have, in the past year, successfully pollinated the Theobroma cacao in the tropical display house. So that's commonly known as the chocolate tree because it creates chocolate pods. So I pollinated it through research into how people in Uganda and other chocolate-growing countries do it by hand. And funnily enough, I actually watched a video on YouTube, perversely, on how to pollinate it. And it involves good eyes and a pair of tweezers. I'll put it that way. <laughs> it was really cool. It was really great to see how doing a little bit of online research can lead you on to doing something really fascinating, really interested in, something which I can then teach the incoming students about as well. Hi, I'm Will. I work in the Glasshouse. And one key thing I've taken away from this year has been the variability and the diversity in the Pelagonian species, how some of them come from very desert-like areas, like an arid savanna, and how to grow them based off what they prefer. So. Some prefer very dry conditions, so we give them less water, far less water than what we're probably used to in this country. And they seem to thrive in the glass house because of that. Some can be leafy and green, others are succulent, others just look like dead twigs for about 50% of the year and then they burst into bloom in the winter periods. Beyond that, yeah, there's just variability galore. What made me want to keep exploring the Pelagonians as a genus was their variability, certainly, and also the fact there's this whole range of Pelagonians that we just don't see. We're most familiar with the centered Pelagonians and the zonal varieties, but in the species, there are xerophytic types, there are other sections, other types, like your stellas, your regals. There's a fairly new type known as the formosum type, which has a very distinct leaf layout. For me, what excited me the most about it all was just that I could spend days, if not weeks, every month just learning more and more about them. In the coming year, I personally would love to grow every type of pelagonium there is. However, I think that title belongs only to Fibrex Nursery, who were able to do it from 1970 until just quite recently, when they donated their collection to us. I don't think we've got the space, unfortunately, to grow every type, but if I could visit as many different places and learn through their 
cultivation practices, how they grow pelargoniums, then that would be a real win for me in the new year, I think. I'd recommend pelargoniums to anyone, really. Glasshouse owners, they're kind of winning already. They've got the perfect situation for it. But if you just have a small flat like myself, no garden, no glasshouse at home, and you've just got a sunny patch on your windowsill, then they'll thrive there for you. And actually many of them survive quite well off neglect, and you can just leave them to sit in soil for more than a week at a time, especially in the winter months. So. Hi, my name's James. I'm one of the students here at Wisley. And the biggest thing I learned was just how much produce you can grow on a very small allotment space. I grew everything from parsnips to radishes through to cucumbers and squash, okra, which just about worked outside in this climate in our hot summer, not quite. Yeah, loads of cut flowers and it was incredible. I'd come home with these bags of food every day and then the next day I'd have another bag of food to take home. So I had more than I could possibly want. People really enjoyed getting cucumbers because they were kind of gnarled and small and looked very different to your standard cucumbers. I think what was the biggest problem? Anything that people had to wash too much because generally people can't be bothered to wash things. <laughs> I really enjoyed growing the parsnips because I started right at the beginning of the season in well, beginning of March, and then I harvested them at the very end, and they went from tiny seeds to about two foot long, some of them, they were huge. They were called the Students, which is a heritage variety from the 19th century, which I discovered online, and they're very good. I, I'd like to grow a few of the sort of heritage tomatoes. You get these big, beefy tomatoes, but I've had no success with them so far, so sometimes they're not very forgiving varieties. I, I would definitely recommend people to grow, even if they have a tiny space, even if it's a small container on a balcony or in a, in a flat. You can get, for example, you can get all your salad needs from a tiny little box throughout the whole summer just by harvesting a little bit each day. So I would definitely recommend it. Thanks to everyone who shared. If you have any reflections or stories from the year, we'd love to hear them. You can reach out to us at podcast at rhs.org.uk. As James said, it's possible to grow a lot of vegetables and fruit on even a small allotment. The first thing I think is to have a plan so you know where everything's going to fit, not too much, not too little. Things grow where they won't overshade the other stuff. And then consider growing upwards. So put in stakes and fences to grow the cucumbers and squashes up. Make wigwams for the beans and you can really cram a load of stuff in. And the more stuff is crammed in, the fewer weeds. If you're looking for something to do during the all-too-familiar slump between Christmas and New Year, you're in luck. We thought we could get you outdoors and moving, looking for local fruiting fungi. Here's plant pathologist Jassy Draculic taking us through the colonised fungi log piles at Wisley. I'm here in the wildlife garden up at the shady top corner near Battleston Hill where we've installed some fungus logs. Last winter and springtime, we got some fresh logs from the Arb team. They're only a couple of weeks after they've been harvested. We then drilled holes in them and inserted some furniture dowels, little wooden dowels that have been colonised with fungal mycelium of different species. And we put these dowels into the holes and sealed over the holes with molten beeswax and just left them in a nice shady place so they could stay damp and they could slowly colonise inside the logs with the fungal mycelium. 
now, several months later, they've started to fruit and we're seeing the evidence of the different species coming out through the surface of the logs in different types of magnificent displays. So what I've just walked up to is our arrangement of logs around a log pile and also some that we've erected vertically so that we can have them fruiting all throughout the winter time. Even while all this herbaceous material dies back, this will be still fruiting, coming into life and showing off a wonderful display even in the darker months. So the first one to fruit was the turkey tail. These are small brackets, small little fan shapes, little semicircles that come out in tiers, little clusters, and they're stripy. So they've got like oranges and browns and whites and gold, sometimes even blues and greens creep into there. And on the underside, it's bright white and very fine pores, very small little dots, which is where it releases the spores. All these structures are the fruiting bodies of the fungus, helping spread the spores into the environment. The second species that's fruited is the birch polypore. Now these look quite different. They're really chunky and spongy. They're kind of pale white when they start off growing and they'll get a darker kind of brown gray cap to them over time. And they're really nice to kind of give a little squeeze and a squidge. This looks like a massive piece of marshmallow really. And yeah, hopefully later in the year, some of the other species we've put in there will emerge as well. These ones you might be more familiar with if you're into your gourmet mushrooms, because we've got two different species of winter fruiting oyster mushrooms, the gray oyster and the tarragon oyster as well. We wanted to grow things that would fruit readily and give people a real visual cue, a stimulus to engage with the fungi and start appreciating them for what they're doing for the garden. And I think that the visual impact of this has been really effective. It was a big experiment. We were taking local isolates, cloning them in the lab, propagating them, and then adding them back into these logs and just hoping that they were going to fruit. We didn't know if it would work. It has worked. It's more and more logs are coming into fruit day by day. These are all saprophytic fungi, or saprotrophic fungi, which means that they feed on dead material. Now that dead stuff has a lot of potential to it, but it needs to be unlocked by things just like these fungi that can break down those plant cell walls and release the nutrition that's trapped inside there. And also to soften up that tough wood and make it a nice spongy environment. So things that might get released are things like humic acid, which if you're familiar with what makes your soil fertile, that's a really key component of that. It'll also improve moisture retention and it creates a really rich variety of microhabitats for different invertebrates and other wildlife to thrive on. Also, these actual fruit bodies themselves can be used as forage for wildlife and they emit volatile signals, so smell chemicals, which can attract wildlife towards it. So these are a real transformative process that they're carrying out to enrich the microbiome as well as the wildlife diversity of the area. I think that most gardens could really benefit from adding some extra fungi in there. I think we have often taken away too much of the dead material and we're starving our gardens of this good recycling process and that's making our soils all the poorer for it. So yeah, I think if you can add a log or a pile of logs to your garden in a shady spot where nothing else would grow, that would be really beneficial for the health of the soil, the health of the plants, as well as the wildlife sort of factor in your garden. Freshly cut logs after about two weeks, they're ready to drill and then add your mycelium spawn. You can buy that from your suppliers. But if you are gonna add fungi, I would say look for UK sourced strains because you can buy lots of foreign strains, Asian and American strains of gourmet mushrooms, but I wouldn't recommend adding them to your garden. We just wanna keep and preserve the native fungi that we already have. 
We've added these fungi to the garden to give a really reliable and obvious display for people to really grab their attention. But this happens naturally in nature anyway. Even if you're not going to add your own fungi log, keep your eyes out. I'd definitely say if you're out and about having a walk and you see some dead wood or a fallen tree, go and have a closer look. Look down below where it's going to be more damp. Have a look if there's any kind of bark that's coming away. See if you can see any beautiful little fungi peeking out because this is the time of year when these things will be really coming into their own and putting on the best show of the forest. No fungi will harm you to touch. Uh, you can give them a small poke. Don't pick them. If you think that they're edible, never munch on a hunch. On this grey, drizzly day, I'd say that the fungi here are really what is grabbing my attention. Yeah, it's bringing something full of life, full of interest, and that's ever-changing and evolving subtly day by day, whereas everything else is dwindling and kind of dying back. But the fungi really are sealing the show, and there's something just really charming about seeing them in these darker months. Thanks, Jassy. If you fancy growing fungi at home, you can buy a kit. The kit includes some spawn. Spawn is the stuff that holds the fungus which you inoculate into a substrate. Typically, the spawn will be a dowel of fungus-infected wood, or it'll be some infected grains of rye. You mix those with a substrate, mix the grains with something like old coffee grounds or a toilet roll, or you push the dowel into holes drilled in the log. You leave it in suitable warm, moist conditions, after a while, it comes riddled with fungal strands, and then once you change the conditions, perhaps by making the conditions a little colder, up come the mushrooms which you can gather for your kitchen. Another winter word of advice. Don't cut back your herbaceous perennials, at least not yet. Around the glass house at Wisley, Ian Trout and Louisa Peel make sure the skeletal forms of these perennials last all the way to early spring. Why, you might ask? It has to do with winter interest, wildlife and more. Here's Ian and Louisa to explain. Today, we'd like to talk to you about what we're doing in the garden around our areas. Traditionally, this time of year, quite often people cut back all of their herbaceous perennials. But on the glasshouse landscape and on the borders, we actually keep the skeletal forms for winter interest, for seed heads, grass seeds. It gives a much better structure to the borders. And yeah, it provides winter interest, especially when it, the frost catches it. It looks very beautiful. It looked very beautiful this morning after the first hard frost of the year. So we tend to not focus on cutting back at this time of year. We tend to wait until a bit later in the winter, early spring. This morning I was out looking at a bed that I planted up last November. So this is the first time I've seen it in winter and I wanted to have a look and see how the structure is still holding up. There's a lot of really beautiful grasses. There is Stipocalamagrossus, which has beautiful throngs of uh, seed head grass heads and they were twinkling in the frost the liatris was looking really nice it's very tall and it's got big almost like a sort of horse's mane seed head the euryngiums were looking very good as well traditionally they're summer flowering plants but they're still providing interest now even the nautia Macedonica Mars Midget, which I cut back in the spring to reinvigorate it. That's been flowering up until today. They'd frosted over this morning, but yesterday they were still purple and, and looking really good. So we would recommend not cutting back material at this time of year. 
So the, the glasshouse borders were designed by a Dutch designer, Pete Udolf, who 30 years ago or so kind of designed gardens thinking about their winter structure as one of the elements he was thinking about. He's famous for trying to make people appreciate a dead plant. So as Louisa said, these are summer grown plants. They're plants that do their flowering and growing in the summer, but they also have interesting winter structure. So Flomis tuberosa Amazon, which has beautiful purple flowers early in the year. And then now the seed heads are kind of like little pom-poms on a, on a stick kind of thing. And they just stay standing. They will stay standing all winter. You see the birds feeding on them, eating the seeds. And yeah, when you get a lovely frosty morning, they're really good. The other set of plants that's really good is we have some Veronicastrums. So Veronicastrums are kind of tall, statuesque plant with, again, purpley flowers kind of early summer. And in the summer, they get a bit floppy sometimes, but when they die and they dry out. And then this time of year, the plants kind of stand themselves back up again. And again, they have these really dark seed heads. On the glasshouse borders, you can go and stand on the viewing mount and look down. And you can see these really statuesque black seed heads, which look really good this morning. Another advantage of not cutting back herbaceous plants and keeping up the seed heads is to provide food for wildlife. We see a lot of birds feeding off the seeds in the winter. And also by not clearing up too much of the leaf that's died back at the base, that provides shelter for overwintering. And we encourage people not to be so fastidious about clearing away leaf from your borders and beds because these creatures are hibernating, if you like, under that leaf litter. Also, that material does degrade and gets drawn back into the soil and it provides nutrients and structure, keeps the soil open, you know, helps with retaining moisture retention, which is helpful in the summer later on. When you leave this kind of leaf litter and this and the plant material around, you're providing place for the insects to overwinter. So you often find ladybirds and other things living under there. Also, you get a layer of frost on the top of the plant and it keeps the soil below a bit warmer. So the things that live in the soil have a better chance of not getting killed off by the cold winter temperatures. So in general, you're just gonna have a more diverse ecosystem around the plants. There's definitely beauty at this time of year. You, you kind of have to look sometimes, but this morning is an excellent example where it was a really lovely frosty morning. And because we've left all this here, there is actually something to look at. If you compare that to if we had cut it all back and we've gone down to ground level and maybe put a layer of mulch on, there wouldn't have been a lot to see. There would just have been a brown patch of earth and it would look tidy, but it definitely wouldn't have been as interesting as how it, how it looks at the moment. I definitely think that gardens in winter are still a fascinating and interesting place to visit. Well, apart from the structure and seed heads, you know, there's wonderful tree barks and flowering plants, flowering shrubs, scented shrubs that start to come into play. There's a lot to enjoy in gardens. So it, yes, it's definitely worth coming out and, and seeing what Wisley has to offer and other gardens have to offer. It's best if you can wrap up warm, obviously, and don't push yourself if it's a really miserable, cold, rainy day but actually getting outside and looking what the garden has to offer. Sometimes as well this year, you have to just look a little bit more carefully and that's good for you as well, just to slow down, take your time and you might be a bit surprised. Thanks there to Ian and Louisa. If you want to see the herbaceous perennials at Wisley this winter, you can plan your visit using a link in our show notes. The plants are still there. There's plants like Eryngium, Echinops and Anemones. They're still upright, they're about 90 centimetres and on frosty mornings the frost decorates the dead leaves and the dead stems and the seed heads so you get these mysteriously beautiful forms. The eryngiums, for example, have got spiky leaves and they look a bit like frosted holly and the anemones have cottony seed heads so we've got little blobs of pure white cotton among the frosted remains. 
Even on a dull, rainy day, they look kind of mysterious and ghostly. So there's always something to see. Well, that's about it for today. If you've enjoyed the show, please consider giving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen. It's the best way to help us share the love of gardening, and hopefully it'll mean we'll see more colonised fungi log piles in more and more British green patches. As we look ahead to the new year, I'll be ordering seeds. I spend quite a lot of money on seeds, but they're so important to me, and let's face it, they're cheaper than plants. Also, I'll be sorting out all my sundries. I have lots and lots of bamboo canes. Many of them will be broken and rotted, so I saw off the ends and make them shorter. And of course, I'll be ordering in my fertilisers and manures to get the ground ready. It's only a few weeks now before I start sowing and I just can't wait. So from me, Guy Barter, goodbye and thanks for listening. I'm walking down the path in my garden and I have a suggestion for you on how you could help with global warming. With a large lawn, I found a simple way of making a big difference. I sold my ride-on mower and bought a top-of-the-range Cress robotic lawnmower. It runs off rechargeable batteries and uses cutting-edge technology to mow and maintain a lawn this size. The petrol mower has gone, and with it, the emissions. I actually don't know why I didn't sell the ride-on sooner. With the Cress robotic lawnmower, the lawn is actually looking better. The tiny grass cuttings fall into the grass roots, helping to fertilise the grass. And the family doesn't have to put up with the noise and fumes from the ride-on. And I've freed up more of my time to spend with them and in the garden. It's an easy step, and you could also be making that change today. Ask for Cress in your local garden machinery dealer, or visit cress.com. Discover the beauty of an RHS membership all year round. Save 25% off an RHS membership today when paying by direct debit. Prices start at just £55.50. With a membership, you'll gain access to an array of special events at our gardens all year round. Be the first to know about RHS flower shows and get exclusive member-only days plus reduced rate tickets. And you'll have the chance to enhance your gardening know-how with access to free expert garden advice, monthly editions of The Garden magazine and so much more. Terms and conditions apply.